endeared yourself to us in such a beautiful way, and we always feel very much at home, and we are thankful that you allowed us to come one more time. It's good to have all of our Nazarene friends. Uh, good to see Gail tonight. I held meetings. I only know your last name is Case, but you know, understand my ignorance. Held a lot of meetings for her father, who's gone on home to heaven. And it's a treat to have Mr. and Mrs. Clyburn. Thanks for coming in. I look forward to seeing you, and I'm glad you was able to make it one service. I was thinking this being the Lenten season, and I think about four weeks, four Sundays, we will be uh, commemorating the great uh, uh, resurrection of our Lord. Good Friday. Only reason it's Good Friday is because Sunday came. Uh, it was a Black Friday indeed when they hung him on the cross, rose the third day, and ascended back to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit into the world for you and me tonight. I was thinking about it, I was, I was sitting there, if anyone epitomized the law of sowing and reaping, Jesus did. You see, what the first Adam sacrilegiously sowed in the garden, the second Adam, Christ, sacrificially reaped on the cross of Calvary. And he did it for you and me. And I am so thankful that he loved me that much. And so I like this last opportunity I get to speak to you. It's been good to be with your good pastor, Brother Gobel. He's just a treat to, to be around at any time. And I appreciate Pastor for inviting me and Tom who sings every night and uh, all of these who have given themselves. Thank you so very much for this meeting. If you have your Bibles, I would like to speak in my last message. I hope a, uh, a message that will encourage and strengthen you as you're on your journey homeward. And when I mean homeward, I mean all the way heavenward. And I hope that uh, it's just been recent in my study that this kind of unfolded for me. I hope I can share as much from my heart as from my head. And I'm going to ask you to turn in First Peter, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 3. And I'm going to break in at the 12th verse of First Peter, chapter 3. I'll give you just a moment to find that. Oftentimes I already have it available and I want to start reading before you have it located so give you just a moment to find first Peter and I can inform you that first Peter comes before second Peter if that helps you in any way <clears throat> would you stand with me as we read from God's word first Peter chapter 3 <clears throat> beginning with verse 12 for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Shall we pray? Our Father, one more time, we invoke your presence and ask you to have freedom in the continuance of the service. Thank you for the hymns, the songs, the blessedness of your presence in the prayers of your people, the collection of the saints, the reading of your word, and everything that has already transpired. We pray it to be for your glory and your honor. Now may this word that you have given to us to instruct us in the ways of godliness more perfectly be used for that purpose tonight, and we will give you the glory for all that is received from it. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Peter was writing to the suffering saints of the five districts of Asia. They were a part of what they called the dispersions of that time. They were the pilgrims that were scattered throughout the land, and they were walking with Jesus, but suffering, suffering severely for his cause. He was writing this letter for two reasons that I have discovered. One, it's certainly a letter of encouragement, and you get that sense when you read such statements as, be faithful amidst all adversity, so that they would receive the end of their faith and the salvation of their souls, that recorded in the very first chapter in the ninth verse. That was their hope, and he was encouraging them to be faithful. So first of all, it's a letter of encouragement, but it's also a letter of exhortation. In the first chapter, you remember, he commands that as he which is called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or all manner of living. This is the standard that is necessary to hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we do not know the day of the revelation of Christ, but we do know our duty for readiness in order to receive the rewards that he has awaiting us. And so I think he's trying to get us to see the importance of that duty for readiness. Now, in verse 14 and 15, my text unites these two together. It unites the exhortation to sanctification and the encouragement in suffering. So I want you to hang in your mind two words, sanctify and suffering. They're very prominent throughout this passage. If you'll notice, we read it in verse 14, 15, but if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but, here's the second word, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. So we have, first of all, the call, call to sanctify. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's an interesting admonition, and I'll try to clarify it as I go along, but I want you to note, first of all, the call to sanctify. If you were to read in chapter 2, verse 21, you have the call to suffer. Now, that's not an exciting statement, but we read, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Now, these two words are very dominant throughout this epistle. Sanctification is for the purifying of the heart. Suffering is for the perfecting of the life. And it takes the, both of us 
both of them for us on the journey, the pilgrimage, if you please, to be able to make our calling and our election sure. So let me just take the first one, the call to sanctify. When you read the passage, sanctify the Lord God in your heart, it's the apostle's way of saying, you who are his children, you who have called on him and confessed him as your savior, you who have confessed and been recipients of his pardoning grace, you who have subscribed to his will for your life, it's time now to face up to the full implications of his lordship. In other words, the question now is being posed. Are you willing, now that he has forgiven you and come into your heart and life, to be an open channel for the full flow of his life and love, or, or are you going to choke it out by a partial discipleship? You see, when we talk about the heart, the seat of the affections, the heart is not this muscle that pumps the blood through our bodies. It's literally the very seat of the affections in man, but it is a throne room, as the Bible teaches us, in which Jesus longs to rule and reign. The time now has come, now that we are his children, to climb down off the throne room of our own self-government and yield the keys wholly to him to take rule of your life. Now, the reason I say that, it's, it's interesting to me that there are many who are willing to, to accept God's grace over their sins, but they're not sure they want his government over themselves. Uh, I think it was F.B. Meyer, the great missionary some years ago, who said he had received Christ and walked with him for many years, and all of a sudden he began to realize the import of making him absolute Lord of his life. And God came to him one day in his own way of testifying, and he said, he said, I want all the keys of your life. F.B. Meyer said, I gave him a group of keys, figuratively speaking, but he said, I kept one for myself. <laughs> and he said, God knew that, of course, because he knows all man and he knows what's in man. And he said, when he did not yield all of the keys of his life to God, God gave him back the keys that he did give him and turned and started to walk. He said, I could see God begin to walk out of my life. And he said, I called him back. And he said, when he came back, I gave him all the keys I previously gave him. And then I reached deep in my heart and gave him the one key I wanted for myself. Folks, being a Christian is more than being making heaven your home. It's making the Christian life the very goal of your living. In fact, it's making God ruler over your life. If you will enthrone him, he will emancipate you and me. He will set us free from every rival in our soul. As he always said in his writings all through John, he said, I do always those things that please the Father. It is then that we can take joy in being a pleasure to him. I do not want to live the Christian life as though it's some kind of a struggle and just go through the motions and go through the rituals of religiosity and just attend church because it's the right thing to do and read my Bible because I'm so devoted I should be doing it. I want to do it because I want to know more of the lover of my soul whose name is Jesus. 
By the way, when we yield the throne to his lordship, it's not done begrudgingly. Our abdication is motivated by affection. We so love him, we don't want to control our lives. And by the way, I can tell you, you're not big enough to control your life. The enemy whispers as though he thinks you know better. You're not going to be able to because you will be a slave to yourself when God wants to set you free and you can become a servant unto righteousness. Now, the English revised version of this statement, sanctify the Lord God in your heart, says it's very clarifying. It says, sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. Now, the obvious question is, how do I do that? What do I have to do to, to make that a reality? Well, number one, we must recognize Jesus as sovereign and we also must recognize his sanctity. The sovereign one is holy, and the holy one is sovereign. And when we recognize that, we honor what we recognize by living holy and righteous all the days of our lives. When I said to you in the first chapter, the great, great exhortation to the Christian, as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy. God is a holy God. And it is his standard of holiness that becomes the standard for his children. Because you see, holiness cannot fellowship with contrary unholiness or sin or anything like it. Love cannot abide hate and his sovereignty will not abide rebellion. And so if we are going to have fellowship with God, we must have the same standard of which he is. And he has provided for us that we should be holy. And by honoring what we recognize when we sanctify him, the Lord of our lives. Now, I also want you to note that's reciprocal. And the reason I say that, we pray it in the Lord's Prayer that I mentioned last evening when we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, that's sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. When I sanctify him in my heart, he in turn sanctifies, and that definition of sanctification is cleanses me of every vestige of evil remaining in my heart. And it is then and only then that I can call him Lord because Paul says no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So you must enthrone him into the heart. Now this exhortation of sanctifying the Lord God in your heart uh, involves a cooperation between two, uh, God and man. What's the co cooperation? Well, you remember Romans 12, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. We make the presentation. What we present, he will purify. He says he purifies the heart by faith. The cooperation is, I present, he purifies. I consecrate, he cleanses. You can't cleanse your heart, only he can do that. But it's, it, it, it sounds almost as though he expects you to do it when he says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. If I were to fly from New York to Chicago and you were there at the airport to pick me up, when I got in the automobile, I could say to you, I made the trip. Well, the fact is, I really didn't make the trip. The uh, jetliner made the trip. What I did was choose the means, bought the ticket, boarded the plane, and availed myself to the accommodations. 
but we say, I made the trip. You didn't, but you couldn't have without the plane. Now, having that in your mind, I cannot sanctify myself. Do you remember in 1 John chapter 3, it says, every man that has this hope in him purifieth himself? I can't do that. You can't do that. I can't sanctify myself, but Jesus can't sanctify me without myself. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to see the cooperative functioning that's going on. By faith, by which we are made pure, is a moral act, and when it's performed by the aid of the Holy Ghost, the act is so truly ours that God affirms to his holy people in the first chapter of Peter, verse 22, he says, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. You understand the cooperation that is necessary to sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Now, it's important that we do this because he cannot be Lord if we have divided loyalties, if we have a divided allegiance, if we are not singleness of mind, if we're double-minded, we're unstable in all of his ways. James says, cleanse your hands, sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's one thing to be forgiven of my sins, that's what my hands are all about, but it's another thing to be purified in my heart, that's why he said purify your heart that goes deeper than the acts I committed. It's talking about a disposition that I inherited because of Adam's fall. And God wants us to sanctify him. Jesus says, uh, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You talk about a stinging rebuke. I don't think I would have wanted to be receiving into that statement. But let me tell you what he's saying. It's easy for us to say he's my Lord. You know, he's my Lord. That was an interesting song that Karen sang. I, I, I agree with what it was, the message behind it. I think it sort of dovetails this idea. It's easy for us to say these words, but it's altogether different to, to make them a reality in our life. The more I call Jesus Lord, the greater the obligation is mine to do what he says. And more than that, the greater the condemnation if I fail to do what he says. And that's why he says to sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. Now, we used to talk about the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. I don't know who taught them to spell back then, but that's what we used to say. There are three R's here. It, one of them understood, but let me, let me show you in, in, in verse uh, uh, 15 where it says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason for the hope that is within you. Three things I want you to notice. The resident Lord in your heart. Now, the word resident isn't there, but it's understood because when you sanctify the Lord in your heart, he comes in as resident, and I might say he comes in as president. Uh, he doesn't come just as a weekend guest. The resident Lord in your heart becomes the ready answer everyone that asks you of the hope of the reason that is within you. In other words, Paul made it very simply, simple and succinct when he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Talking to Dr. Dennis Kinlaw, I have a lot of conversations with him when I can. He's 96 now, so I don't get as many. But I remember him telling me in between John 14 and 16, he said, do you know, I think it's uh, 16 different times the word in 
or, or, or in is used. He says, do you know when we reach that point in the gospel, Jesus is no longer merely with us. He is now in us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's, uh, he was talking about the importance of knowing the difference of an external Christ and an internal Lord. Regeneration and sanctification are both provided through the efficacy of the power of the cross, and a purified heart becomes the basis for everything that follows thereafter. When the work is done, Wesley said, tis but begun. Now let me move from the call to sanctify to the call to suffering. Verse 21 says, for hereunto, chapter 2, verse 21, hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his, set, his steps. You know, you, you read all kind of books, uh, why do good people suffer? Or why, is, why doesn't God do something about all the suffering? Suffering is very difficult to understand in the context of the Christian life and the Christian faith. Dr. Paul Reese made a statement that I think is very uh, enriching, and it has been to me. Suffering is never God's will if by his will you mean his pleasure. God is not a sadist. God does not long just to see you suffer. However, he said, suffering is frequently God's will if by his will you mean his permission. In other words, there's things God permits that he doesn't prevent, and it's for a purpose that he permits it. Christ is our example. And when he suffered, he did not merely bear his suffering. He used his suffering to make him sympathetic, and I say empathetic, to our needs. Because as mediator, he stands above us in our deity, but he stands with us in our humanity. And no matter what we go through, we now can know we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He's already gone ahead of us. He's the file leader. He's been where you are. He knows what you're suffering. You cannot surprise him with anything all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution I don't know what you do when you read passages like that you will through great tribulation enter the kingdom it's a consequence of godly living suffering now we don't go around seeking to find ways to suffer we don't have a martyr spirit but we seek Christ-likeness. And when we do, suffering will be inevitable. Suffering. We all have various means of suffering. Some of us, most of us, don't even go around talking about it or tell it or share it. A lot of it is internal. A lot of it is physical at times. A lot of it is uh, emotional. And a lot of it is just being a Christian. Uh, Wife and I were down to see my oldest sister, Pauline, this week, and she's, she for three years, I don't know how she's lived to this very day. Probably weighs 60 pounds and skin draped over bone and had Parkinson and she can't, she can't communicate hardly. You can't hardly hear what she says. It's just, it's a very sad sight. We go down not because we enjoy it, we go down because we know we should. 
and tried to spend a little time with her, but she found God about three, four years ago. And uh, immediately she mentioned to Barbara and I, my wife, she said, I wish I'd lived like you guys have lived. And every time we've been down there since, she's tried to say something about her past, and I have to keep telling her, Pauline, put it behind you. It's under the blood. But I have to tell you, the longer we wait, the more the enemy loves to bring the stuff to the surface, and we suffer. We suffer the consequences and the scars of sin in a world that's no friend of God or grace. And I can tell you, the suffering continues because when we are serving God, the enemy does not like that. But I just say there's all kind of suffering. Sanctification has been called the harmonizing experience. It makes us at one with ourselves. It makes us at one with God. It makes us at one with our fellow man. However, it is merely the basis for what we call establishing grace. I used to hear, in fact, A.M. Hills wrote a book entitled Out of Rome is the Establishing Grace, and he made the experience of sanctification the establishing grace. And I don't want to question that great man, but I don't think that's altogether true. Because when you read Peter chapter 5, verse 10, we read these words. Suffering is what establishes us, for he says that after you have suffered a while, he will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Sanctification is the basis for our establishment, but suffering is the means of our establishment. How do I know that? Because sanctification comes at a crisis moment. It's an epical experience. It comes as one totally enthrones Christ in the heart as Lord. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. That's not a process. That's a point of time. But suffering doesn't occur in a crisis. It takes time to suffer, and suffer always precedes establishing don't ever be shocked when you yield everything to God and make him Lord of your life if all of a sudden you encounter tremendous temptations and trials. Don't be shocked. You say, why? Well, the devil hasn't changed. Sin hasn't changed. The carping critics of life haven't changed. So I can assure you they're going to attack you. They will because you become a conviction to them. They don't like it. You show them Jesus, and they don't always like to see Jesus. You know, a revelation fact needs a corresponding revelation to interpret it. Do you remember when God sent the Son into the world? Do you remember Jesus said to Philip, John 14, Philip said to him, Jesus, show us the Father, and it will suffice, it will satisfy us. Jesus looked at him and said, said, Philip, don't you understand when you've seen me? You've seen the Father. By the way, folks, if anybody wants, ever walks up and asks you, what is God like? Say, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Walk through the pages of those letters and watch Jesus, and you'll get to see who God is. Now, we know that's true. Jesus reveals God. But you and I are living epistles, and this word is a revelation revealing Jesus to us. He revealed the invisible God. We now, through his word, see the invisible Christ. But you know and I know the world doesn't read this book. And so because you and I are living epistles or living letters, Paul said, read of all men, our lives ought to be a revelation to who Jesus is. I think the hymn writer caught it when he said, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. We are to reveal Jesus to this world. 
we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure, of course, meaning the Holy Spirit and these human vessels are very infirm. We make a lot of mistakes. We are in judgment and, and consequently uh, suffering sometimes comes because of our own infirmities, our own ignorances. We say things out of turn. We need to apologize. We have to rectify things because of that. Suffering is not only consistent in the holy life, it's beneficial. Jesus, it says, Christ learned obedience by the things he suffered. If it was suffering that Jesus endured to learn obedience, you and I are not going to get off the hook. I've got to tell you, it's the only means by which we can know obedience. And so we have to carefully, carefully guard our spirit when we're going through suffering. Oftentimes, we become critical. Oftentimes, we have a tendency to, to snap out and become sharp or caustic or unkind because we're going through some kind of suffering. We must never allow bitterness or resentment to erupt when God allows us to go through the furnace of afflictions. And I can tell you why, because if he is Lord of our lives, he's the refiner's fire. And he knows when the dross has all been removed and he knows when the gold is pure and he knows when it's time to lift the crucible. I don't think there's anyone in the Bible that personifies that more than Job. You remember sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also and Jesus looked at him and ex-carnate Christ said, what about Job? Have you tried Job who's a just man who fears God, has choose evil, he's perfect, he's upright? How would you like God to put you up against Satan like that? I've always prayed, God, don't trust me that severely, test me that severely. And you know all the things he went through, but he stayed true in the crucible. Why did God allow him to go through it? He had faith that Job would stay true in the crucibles of life. That's why I say to you, any suffering you have to face, and the more you face and stay true, the more faith God has in you. I think sometimes we only think, well, it's us having faith in God. No, he has faith in his children. We must never become bitter. Trials and tests are necessary stepping stones to the stability of life, and they certainly are the gateways to perfection. That's why, that's the only reason, only way you could justify statements like James, who says, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation, because the trying of your faith worketh patience. Suffering is the chisel and the mallet that God uses to conform us to his image. Romans 8 said, all things work together for the good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose that we may be conformed to the image of his son. He's shaping us every day. I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis. If you've never read him, you ought to. He's been dead. I think he died the same day John Kennedy was assassinated. But he was a great teacher out of Oxford University. He never got higher than a tutor because he, after 31 years being an atheist, he turned to God. They didn't like that. And he wrote mere Christianity and the screw tape letters and all these, but he made a statement in one of his letters that he wrote. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. He said it is his megaphone to arouse 
a deaf world. Lodeitzen, he who does not weave the strands of tragedy in the fabric of life, will forever be insecure. Well, we're facing this week and the weeks ahead in the next three or four weeks when we go through this time when we reach the Passion Week, the, the time of the crucifixion and the cross. It wasn't until 1958 that I met Christ. And I had walked horizontally in this world like everybody does. But there came a time that I reached up vertically to God. And he met my need. But when I, horizontal, reached vertical, I created a cross. So do you. And I have to tell you, the cross is not pleasant. It's painful. And I think we do our people no favors when we preach a gospel without a cross. But God stands at the very center of the Christian life, and we stand there with him through the cross. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. Hebrews says, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. But he doesn't stop there. And by the way, if you take, break that down, the purpose of his passion was to purify his people. Jesus, that he might sanctify, that's the purity, the people with his own blood. That was the passion. You saw the movie, passion, the passion of Christ, the death of Christ. That was the purpose of his dying, to sanctify his people. And being that true, he said then, let us go forth unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. You can't walk with Jesus long, but what you're going to have an encounter with those who do not accept him, and they won't accept you. Jesus said they hated me. I'm greater than you are. They'll hate you. Isn't that a wonderful outlook? <laughs> but Paul gives us good news in, in the latter part of the, this message. I guess I need to begin to close it down. The sufferings, he says, of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For he says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And if anybody knew someone apart from Christ that suffered severely, it was the apostle Paul. Read Corinthians, you'll find that out. And so Paul, he was a great religionist. You know, it's harder to save a religious person than it is a sinful person. You say, what do you mean religious? Well, Paul was a very religious man before he ever met Jesus. You read the third chapter of Philippians, he gives you his pedigree, you know. He, he, was, a, he, he was a Sadducee. He, was a, he was studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a teacher of the law. He went about persecuting the Christians, thinking he was doing God's will and on and on. But he said he took everything. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he said, I took everything that I had earned of myself and put it on the debit side of the ledger, and I counted it all but dung, refuse, that I may know Christ. There was a lady by the name of Amy Carmichael. Don't know if you've ever read any of her writings, but she wrote a lot of books. Amy Carmichael came from Ireland and went to India. 
And she went to India as for one express purpose, and that was to, to start orphanages for girls who were being used as the Hindu temple prostitutes. And she brought them into the orphanage, and she suffered severely, shielding them from that religious perversion. It got so bad that the boys were being used, she started another orphanage for little boys who were being used the same way. And she started these orphanages. She was in India for 55 years in this work. She wanted so much to identify with those of India that she took coffee, literally poured it on her body, bathed in it to darken her skin, sat and traveled on the dusty roads of the heat, and she became almost as darkened as they were. Well, at 63 years of age, Amy fell in a, a little hole and twisted her ankle and was laid up. She thought was going to be laid up for just a little while. As it was, she was laid up for 20 years. In fact, she never walked again before she died, and she died in 1951. Amy Carmichael, bedfast, 20 years, was asked, what is it like to be a missionary? Oh, she said, a missionary is a place where you can go and die. Now, what she was talking about, die to herself so that Christ could live. Amy Carmichael, during that time, wrote 16 books as she was laid up in the bed. And her final words were, it is safe to trust him to fulfill the desire that he creates in you. It's safe to trust God in spite of all of her suffering. Do you remember over in Hebrews Speaking of Christ, it said he endured the cross, despising the shame, and it said it was because of the joy that was set before him. What does that mean? Ladies have children. They take nine months, body changes, get down near the time travailing in labor to give birth to a child, go through the sicknesses they go through throughout the nine months, and then reach that point of delivery where painful as it is, no lady does that just to have that pain. The only reason they do it is because when I come through this suffering, I'm going to have a healthy little for the joy of that child, I'm willing to suffer nine months of discomfort. Jesus is saying, cross wasn't easy to him. I've gone in my imagination and sat down at the foot of the cross, and I've beheld in my mind the agony and the anguish that Jesus had to endure for me and you. I've seen him as they nailed his hands and feet to the cross and suspended him between heaven and earth with a convert on one side and a criminal on the other side. I've, I've, I've beheld it in my mind's eye. 
And I can see him as they jeered and they mocked and they laughed. The interesting thing about Jesus hanging on the cross, with all the noise, with all the shouting, crucifying, with all the hate, with all the anger, there was still he was able to hear a thief say, remember me. And he looked over and said, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Isn't that interesting? All the noise he was hearing. Look to the Father. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And now with everybody having abandoned him and they're hanging there, totally, he became sin. The sacrifice for my sin. That's what I'm saying. What, G, what Adam sacrilegiously sowed, he sacrificially reaped. And by the way, it was my sin he reaped. It was yours. And as he hung there, he finally needed help like he never needed it before. And he looked over and thought maybe the Father would give him a little help. The world had already draped itself in darkness. And it said the Father turned. If you want to know what it's like to be abandoned of God, go to Calvary. And he looked up and cried, my God, why hast thou forsaken me and gave up the ghost and died? He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy of bringing you and me to him. Are we willing to suffer a little bit for his sake? Well, they never shook hands with me today. I don't know if I'm going to go back to church there. Man, they never shook hands with me. All they do, want money all the time. That's all they want. Let me tell you something. You better get your eyes a little higher than that. Look unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of your faith. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you. The reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. And then be willing to suffer for the sake of God. I wonder, Tom, if we could sing a closing hymn.